This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone and it's great to have your company once again. When you look at the history of European philosophy and you see that it's largely a history of men doing and saying and writing things, that presents an interesting challenge for anyone who wants to raise the historical profile of women. Because women have always been philosophers, it's just that the record of their contributions to philosophy has been eclipsed by the shadow of the great men, the the Platos, the Aristotles, the Kants and so on. And you could say, as many do say, that what we need to do is to establish a more complete history, one where we pay as much attention to the great women as we've paid to the great men. And there is certainly something in that, but then if philosophy is primarily about ideas and concepts and debates and issues, is it maybe a little bit odd to be looking at the history of philosophy as a history of individual people, either male or female, however impressive those individuals might have been? Well, today's guest has what I find to be a fascinating take on this question. Jacqueline Broad is Professor of Philosophy and Head of the Philosophy Department at Monash University in Melbourne. She has a particular focus in her work on women philosophers of the early modern period, that's the mid-17th to mid-18th century, and Jacqueline Broad is speaking with Aidan Ryle. For the early modern period, in universities at least, we tend to study white men, predominantly Christian men from Europe, and they also tend to be very privileged men from upper classes. Um, So I think it's important to start looking at a different side of things because when you look at, um, especially if you look at the viewpoint of of women philosophers, they usually come from a more disadvantaged point of view. Like they haven't had a very extensive education. So they've lacked uh, a university education, for example. They've been restricted in terms of employment. And within marriage, they were extremely limited in terms of their freedom. So when you look at their viewpoints about certain classic philosophical issues like liberty and toleration, how to lead a good life, how to be an autonomous person, they have quite a different viewpoint. They come from the perspective of not having so much privilege and and liberty. And so while the women I study, I must admit, were also white, European, and they tended to be Christian, I think they do nevertheless bring us this different point of view, which is really valuable when we're writing a thoroughgoing account of the history of philosophy. But one thing as an historian of philosophy is that I look back and I see that women Women don't have a visible history of themselves as thinkers of the first rate. And until recently, it was thought that women didn't really qualify. They didn't have what it took to be a great thinker. So I see my own work as aiming to show that women do have a history of engaging in philosophical thought, contributing to philosophical thought, being thinkers of the first rate and so on. And also, I guess another part of my work is also to try to blow up that myth of the great thinkers. And instead, I like to show that there have been certain core ideas and arguments and debates in philosophy that were discussed collaboratively. Because if we look at issues and ideas and arguments and concepts and so on, we don't have to single out a great genius. We can look at everyone's contribution to the debate. I really like this idea of kind of blowing up the myth of <laughs> the great thing. I think that's... Like, metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically. Well, I think it's a very worthy project either way. Um, so I'm wondering here, again, I really like this idea of 
a history of philosophy arranged by issues rather than thinkers. That, that seems like a much more inclusive and probably also kind of more fruitful way of going about it. Um, but I'm also wondering if we owe these women some kind of duty of recognition or whether it's just for us in the present. So as I was going through some of your writing, I was really struck by how similar a lot of the work that some of these women are writing on is to some of our really kind of modern philosophical movements. So one I think that stood out to me the most was Margaret Cavendish's writing on the kind of moral equality of humans and animals. Um, and as you, you say in your work, this seems to really anticipate Peter Singer's utilitarian animal ethics. Um, and that was, there's some gap of sort of like 350 years there, which is amazing. And just sort of given that we we do have this emphasis on great thinkers still, do we owe these women something like that? Like, is there some kind of epistemic duty that accrues to them or are we doing them some kind of harm or is it or is it just for us? For our own benefit. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to start to answer your question by first giving a big shout out to Peter Singer, um, who I'm sure many listeners are already familiar with. He's considered to be one of the most famous uh, philosophers on the planet. And we were very fortunate at Monash University to have him, I think, first in the philosophy department and then in the Centre for Bioethics for many years. And it was actually a conversation with Peter Singer many years ago that got me thinking about Margaret Cavendish's views on animals in more depth. I just I remember getting a lift between campuses with him one day and and I said, look, have you heard of Margaret Cavendish? Because uh, she's this really interesting 17th century figure who's often defending animals, defending their moral status, arguing that we owe them greater moral consideration and so on. And he said he was very interested to hear more about her because the fact is that in the 17th century, there are a very limited number of ethical positions that are taken towards animals in the time. There are many arguments that appeal to the virtue of treating animals kindly because this is good for our own moral character. It helps to develop that virtue of kindness towards other creatures. And so it's thought that if you treat animals brutally, that this somehow also brutalises the human moral character. But of course, that's an anthropocentric argument. It's got nothing to do with the pain and suffering that animals feel themselves. But you almost never see arguments that appeal to animals' sentience, appeal to their capacity to feel pain. So Margaret Cavendish, this woman philosopher writing voluminous works in 17th century, often has these comments uh, in defence of animals and she claims that they do have the capacity for sense and reason. It's just different to our own, but that doesn't mean uh, that we don't owe them some kind of moral consideration. And we uh, should try to rid ourselves of this discontinuous thinking where we think there's this radical divide between human beings and other animals. So she was one of the first thinkers to challenge that. So I think it's a good idea to bestow merit where merit is due and to look at Margaret Cavendish and say, wow, like here's this neglected, forgotten woman philosopher who's anticipating a number of um, very modern day themes in ethics, you know, especially in animal ethics in terms of our treatment of animals and so on. And I think it's good to acknowledge that she foreshadowed modern ethical thinking in that way. It can also be to our benefit to include uh, her thought in the history of philosophy because it actually gives us more positive, less less negative, less depressing view of the history of philosophy, which has, unfortunately, very often provided justifications for the poor treatment of animals. You take uh, the views of Descartes in the period, which were quite influential, uh, that led to a viewpoint among some animal vivisectionists that when animals cry out in pain, it, it no more signals their suffering than, say, the screeching of brakes in a car. 
that was because that philosophy regarded animals as types of machines that didn't have consciousness, didn't have sentience in the same way that we do. So when you include women in the history of philosophy, it can uh, make you feel that there is a different history out there, a more positive, more humane, less kind of brutal um, history of ethical thinking with regards to animals. Yeah, that's that's really nice. I want to pick up on this idea of changing the tone of the history. So we in philosophy at least tend to think that we have, and I think this is right, uh, like a particularly close relationship to our past, to our history. And we kind of engage with our history more than a lot of other disciplines like biologists aren't that interested in doing (laughs) biology with someone from 500 years ago. Um, So how much, and do you think that the histories we tell in philosophy have an impact on our practice in the present day? And do you think it's different to the impact that other disciplines have? Yes, philosophy is an intensely historical discipline. We're always in dialogue with the past, always in dialogue with some dead (laughs) philosopher or other. Uh, And yes, there is this big contrast with, say, a discipline like biology where it just wouldn't make sense to have a first-year biology class and where all you talk about is William Harvey's views on the circulation of the blood, for example. Um, But I wonder sometimes if philosophers really should have the reverence that they do have for the philosophers of the past you find a common thing, uh, especially, I must say, amongst the work of, of my colleagues who are not historians, so they like to point to something in a philosophy that's human or a viewpoint that can't held. And as though that the mere attaching it to that philosopher's name gives it greater authority and greater credit. And in that respect, that intensely historical nature of philosophy sometimes makes it sound like a religion where there are these canonical fathers who are uh, held in awe and regarded with great respect and reverence. And in a discipline that prides itself on only using reason as the touchstone for its justifications and so on, you wonder sometimes if this reverence that we show for those past historical thinkers should really be a part of philosophy and should perhaps be rethought in light of the fact that many of the views these men held we we may no longer wish to hold today. And I suppose that comes back to my viewpoint that sometimes it may be more beneficial to value the history of debates, of ideas, of arguments and theories and not just, you know, the ideas of a single thinker because there's a really rich source of material out there. And, of course, if we do look to debates and arguments and theories and so on instead of single thinkers, we can include women into the picture, like add add women and stir, so to speak, and, and get their viewpoint on things. Yeah, that, that seems completely right. I know I've been approvingly, when I've asked a question in a seminar, someone's been like, oh, the Humean point, of course. And I'm like, I've never read Hume. How can I be making a Humean point? Um, so For like, your view, that was great. Yes, I had yeah, authority. No, like, it was Humean. Yeah, yeah, so it's not me. I'm just, yeah. Um, so when we're kind of building the canon of philosophy, and, and you have this really nice view of the, the history of philosophy, the canon of philosophy as being, should be about issues rather than people. One of the big problems that's faced the history of, or feminist history of philosophy, is that women weren't viewed as philosophers, and they're also that their problems often weren't viewed as philosophical problems. I know that there's this kind of women's question that male philosophers just simply don't take up, and also that women were thought to be incapable of the kind of like rational and rigorous thought that philosophy requires. So if, if they weren't viewed as philosophers in their time, if the issues that they were writing on weren't viewed as kind of properly philosophical, where does that leave us in the present? Is it a counterfactual history that we're writing? And what to make of that, I wonder? 
Mm, a counterfactual history. Well, first of all, I think we need to correct the viewpoint that women were not respected as philosophers in the time because the evidence actually shows against that often. I mean, I know we might have good reason to think that women were not uh, respected or revered or regarded as, as philosophers, but it's not true amongst their own personal acquaintances and some of the people that they were in immediate contact with. It's often very well-known and well-respected philosophers in my period, such as John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, René Descartes, um, and so on. So women were respected by male philosophers for their philosophical skill. Um, we just don't tend to hear about that because we don't hear a great deal about the contribution that women made. But if you go to the letters in particular and the correspondences they held, there's often a lot of expression of appreciation for the kind of insights that women brought to their their philosophical thinking. Also, they were seen as philosophers. And the reason for that is, I think, that philosophy was actually much, much wider and, and encompassed a lot a lot more than, than it does today, where it tends to be a narrow pursuit that only takes place in universities and so on. But there was not such a great divide between philosophy and religion, for example. And a lot of these women felt like they had a license to talk about philosophy when it connected to religion because, of course, especially in the Protestant religion, it was everybody's duty to attain salvation through their own efforts. So uh, women couldn't very well be criticised for weighing in on, on religious philosophical debates. And, you know, that was very much a religion, I should say, was very much at the heart of philosophy in uh, the 17th century questions about the immateriality and the immortality of the soul was a key issue. And, of course, um, that was connected to issues about the existence of God and, and so on. So in my view, what I am trying to present is not a counterfactual history. It's the actual history that took place, but has been hidden from view, if you like. Because another thing, of course, is that the women didn't always write in the classic standard philosophical treatise genre. They wrote in many different uh, genres, ranging from their letters, which I've already mentioned. So their diaries, um, conduct manuals for women contain their philosophical thoughts, uh, essays on marriage, poetry, plays, and so on. All of which, I should add, were... Um, maybe with the exception of conduct manuals, but they were accepted um, kind of genres for philosophical writing at the time. Men wrote letters and diaries and essays and poetry and plays that have philosophical themes. Um, but of course, over the years and over the centuries, we've come to have a much more narrow conception of the kind of genres in which philosophy can take place, in which philosophy can be conducted. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone on RN and the ABC Listen app. This week, Aidan Ryle is speaking with Jacqueline Broad, who's Professor of Philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne. One of the problems facing us is that until now, or at least, say, the past couple of centuries, men have owned the philosophical mint. And by that, I don't mean like the um, after-dinner mint. I mean the mint that the prince <laughs> coinage, if you like. And by this metaphor, I mean they've set the agenda in terms of what is philosophically important. They print the currency of discussion, like all the things that get discussed. Um, why? All because they have been the ones that have been permitted to enter the universities. They're the ones whose works have been studied again and again and again. They're the ones who have been the historians writing the histories of philosophy traditionally. 
And so if you don't use that currency that they've been churning out in their philosophical mint, no one's going to exchange ideas with you because you, you just got the counterfeit money. You don't have the real money and you're disregarded. And so often it can seem like women aren't really using the currency. So my work, uh, I hate to go back to... Um, the blowing up myth again, but it's almost like staging a revolution in the mint, right? We've got to take over the mint and take control to bring the spotlight back on these issues that were that were really relevant to women and are still quite relevant to women today and allow that they can be central issues in philosophy and they can be, you know, the subject of philosophical inquiry, those issues such as early childhood education, marriage, motherhood and so on. And so we can start stamping different different coins, if you like, as long as we haven't completely blown up the philosophical mint. I'm I'm just going to stop there because I don't think this metaphor can go much further. But we have to try and strike a balance between what interests us today um, and also remain true to what their concerns were and acknowledge that they were genuine philosophical concerns. So with this metaphor of stealing the mint or taking over the mint to produce a new philosophical currency, I wonder uh, what you see the role of the history of philosophy specifically in kind of challenging the homogeneity of philosophy. So figures vary. These are from the APA, which is the American Philosophical Association. They they publish data on this kind of stuff. But according to their figures, uh, only about 20 to 25 percent of philosophy faculty are female. And of all the PhDs awarded, only 20 percent of these PhDs go to people of colour. And the situation is particularly bad both in black and indigenous uh, philosophers. And it's really hard not to kind of look, as you say, to this corresponding lack of diversity in the canon, like where men have decided what the questions are, what the history contains, and how this controls the dialogue in the present and what gets recognised as legitimate philosophy. So I, yeah, I wonder if you could speak to this connection. What is the role of the history of philosophy in changing this? Yeah, those figures are really interesting, Aidan. So there are, there are also um, some figures put forward by Australian uh, women philosophers as well. I think Fiona Jenkins from ANU had an article maybe about seven years ago which showed that within Australia, 90% of philosophy professors were male. I think the figure might be a little bit more positive today, but it's still indicative that even when women do get into the profession, they're seriously underrepresented in senior positions, um, you know, continuing positions, upper level professoriate positions and so on. So it is an issue. And I see myself as making a modest contribution, but nevertheless an important one to changing the discipline and making it less like one of those STEM subjects, you know. I mean, I think there's there's efforts also to make STEM subjects less male-dominated as well. In philosophy, I think there is a role for presenting a history of philosophy that includes women so that we make women feel like they belong in the discipline. Not just women at the professional level, but also the undergraduates that are coming into our units and studying the discipline. And look, the same goes also for students of colour, um, students from different religious and racial backgrounds and so on. I do think there still needs to be more effort to make these students feel as though they belong in the discipline. And it, we don't just have this um, history of white male European Christian uh, men dominating the narrative, so to speak. You've argued that the earlier modern period is kind of particularly foundational for present philosophy. And so in recent decades, the work of bringing female thinkers back into the canon has been viewed as particularly crucial. So for you, what's so important about this early modern period and what do these topics as discussed in the early modern period bring particularly to our practice of philosophy today? 
So there were many great revolutions in thinking in the period, not just the famous scientific ones, which most people have heard about, the Copernican revolution, thinking for the first time that, you know, the earth was not at the centre of the universe, human beings were not core focus, uh, but rather that they were just one of many planets circling the sun and so on. That had a great impact. There were many different approaches to medicine in the time. So this is when we start to see the shift to modern medicine and thinking not in terms of humoral imbalances in the body, but rather seeing diseases as something that came into the body from outside of it, foreign entities, if you like. And of course, that led to advances in chemistry and the use of drugs to treat ailments and so on. And there were shifts in educational theory and definitely in terms of political organisation, what justified political obedience and so on. But the most interesting thing for me as a philosopher was the Cartesian shift in thinking in the period. So that refers to the influence of the French philosopher René Descartes, who was one of the most influential thinkers in the period. From this distance in time, it's difficult to appreciate just how dazzling he was. People would go into bookstores, they would open his books and they would fall on the ground with heart palpitations because he was finally saying what everyone had thought, um, which was that to think critically in the search for truth, we mustn't just blindly accept what the authorities tell us. We mustn't engage in this kind of mindless rote learning as part of our education. We must be taught to be independent thinkers, to put everything to the test of our reason. And of course, he had a method that he came up with on how to achieve this clarity in thought and how to search for truth. And one of the um, characteristic recommendations of this method is that you start by looking within your own mind. So introspection was very important for him. And so the women of the period, of course, found this very exciting because they didn't need books. They didn't need to learn Latin, although Descartes wrote in Latin, but, you know, uh, they had uh, some translations and popularizations available. They were everywhere in the period. Everybody was picking up Descartes' ideas. And so you start by looking within yourself and you see that you have this power. It's a superpower. In fact, there's some suggestion that in mean, Descartes is almost divine power because it makes you like God. What is it? It's the will. It's your capacity to affirm or deny, pursue or avoid, to direct your attention one way or the other. And you have that in your control. Every human being, it's characteristic of being a human being, has that in their control. And when women heard about this idea and realised that they could do philosophy simply by using this, this internal power they had to affirm or deny ideas according to whether they were clear and distinct or, or not, if they were obscure and confused, um, it was incredibly inspiring. And so you find a number of Cartesian women in the period, and that's, I think, what drawn me to this period in particular, women discovering that through their own um, power, their own natural logic and reasoning abilities, they could engage in philosophy and they didn't need to have that university education or training in logic and language and so on. Can I ask you as well on the, the topic of your work, have you found that writing about these early modern women and, and these philosophers, has that challenged or changed your understanding of what philosophy is? And if so, how? Yeah, well, it, it hasn't really changed my view of what philosophy is, but it's 
definitely changed what I think is useful and valuable about the discipline. So when I began my PhD, I examined metaphysical ideas, which, as you know, ideas about what makes up reality, um, what kind of substances there are in the world. Um, There's a mind and there's a body. How do they interact? What is the mind? And also, I guess, questions that are related to that, that we call epistemological ideas, so ideas about knowledge and what we can know. But the more I've read their works, the works of the women philosophers of the early modern period in particular, the more I've become interested in that ancient question about how to lead the good life, which was actually the traditional kind of focus of philosophy way back in the ancient period in ancient Greece. That's a philosophy that asks, what kind of goals should I have in my life? What kind of policies should I put in place to make sure I lead the best life possible? And women philosophers, at least the ones that I study, they all look at this question. And again, this makes them feel as though they belong in philosophy because everybody needs to ask these questions at some point. At some point, you've got to ask yourself, how can I be a good person? Or what should my goal be in life to make sense of everything that I do? Every human being has a stake in leading the good life. And so I've come around to that way of thinking about philosophy too, um, mainly because I, I see it so much in the women philosophers of the period and and you know, if you don't see philosophy as this extremely narrow discipline looking at rather abstract, theoretical, um, some might say abstruse questions about metaphysics and epistemology, um, you can see that philosophy was much more expansive and that a number of different people from different backgrounds participated in philosophical thinking in the time. No shade to metaphysics. I do love a little bit of (laughs) metaphysics, of course. Um, Is this kind of a really big systematic difference between male thinkers and female thinkers in this time, that male thinkers are more generally interested with the abstract or is it? No, it's not. No. When you go back, so the big philosophers we think of as metaphysicians, take Descartes, his views on the mind and body, Cartesian dualism, most people have heard of that. I think of John Locke, oh, he was interested in, in knowledge. When you look at their wider corpus, like when you look at what they were trying to achieve as philosophers, it actually does come back to this classical uh, philosophical uh, guiding principle, how should we live? Um, Descartes, not so apparent perhaps in his meditations on first philosophy, but the final work he wrote, The Passions of the Soul, contains his moral philosophy where all the different branches of his philosophy come together to be about um, how it is that we can be good and virtuous and so on. Um, And of course, um, you know, one way to do that is to recognise, as I was saying, that we do have this power over our will, they have this utter freedom of choice, and that means we don't have to be a slave to our passions, we don't have to be a slave to those bodily influences. So you see all his epistemology and metaphysics comes together in this ethical programme. John Locke wrote one of the most influential works in modern epistemology, The Essay Concerning Human Understanding. But he began that work with a programmatic statement that most people just ignore these days, but it is very interesting, where he says, so many debates, 
so much violence even out there in the political world is caused by the fact that people uh, can't agree with one another, but also because people reason beyond what human beings can actually, you know, have an understanding about. And so he wanted to clearly define the limits of human understanding so people could stop having these needless debates. I think he had in mind needless religious debates, for example. And so you see here again, the aim is about how to live, how to live harmoniously with one another, how to solve disagreements, how to treat one another with respect and charity and humility when we are having disagreements uh, so that we can find the truth that's available to us and not go vainly searching after truths that we can never find. Jacqueline Broad, Professor of Philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne. She was speaking there with Aidan Ryle, who's currently doing her PhD in philosophy at Australian National University. And this week's episode was produced in collaboration with the Australasian Association of Philosophy. I feel like I said philosophy just a bunch of times just then, but that's hardly surprising. This has been The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and it's been great to have your company. Hope you can join me again next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.